This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Have your Bible with you this evening. We're going to go to Acts chapter 9. Uh, when I was thinking about uh, um, a message for this evening, sometimes whenever uh, um, you're looking for a message, you're, you're almost banging your head against the wall. You're thinking, what can I say? What, what verses are alive to me at the moment? What's God saying to me in, in a way? Or what's alive in the Word? As, as, um, as Johnny said this morning, what's a rhema word I'm, I'm experiencing myself? Can I share that with someone else? And you're really sometimes... Search and search. I've seen myself searching all week and then coming down to Friday, Saturday night and going, okay, you're desperate times, Lord. <laughs> and then at other times, whenever you're sitting, uh, um, uh, you've got an opportunity to share again, you're just bombarded with too many options and you just don't know what to share. Um, well, this message tonight is kind of inspired by uh, Pastor's series he did there a few months back on the Master's Men. It was a great series uh, um, to learn about the learn more um, and be reminded about the the disciples who followed Jesus and how he called them and how each of them had a significance uh, pointed significantly to our lives as well as believers. Um, so inspired by that, there I want to talk this evening about the life of Paul or Saul, depending on uh, what part we start at. We're going to start with Saul. To, um, if I give this message a title, I'd talk, uh, the title would be From Persecutor to Pastor, because that's really what he was. He went from persecutor to pastor. Um, we'll just start reading there in Acts chapter 9, and we'll read the first uh, 10 verses. It's Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues uh, of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which is Christianity, obviously, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drink. And we'll just stop there, actually. Saul, as we know Paul, we think of him now as a dusty, bookish apostle, a philosopher who came up with the New Testament. And we think of his books that he has written. And we think of all that he had done for Christianity. And sometimes we forget where he came from and what he started out as. We can brush past Saul and jump straight to Paul. But there's a lesson in this for us. There's a point to, to, for the, him giving his testimony. God has allowed, the Holy Spirit has allowed this to be put into Scripture in order to admonish us, to encourage us, to give us hope, to give us faith, 
to keep us on the path. These are all things that are important. And it's important for us to look at these men and their lives and what they meant. And obviously, uh, Pastor has gone over the, the 12 disciples. And I'm just, just touching on Paul tonight. Paul was a, a, a unique man in many ways. He was a devoted view, a Jew um, who came from the city of Tarsus, which is in the province of Cilicia. If you think of Jerusalem, and if you head north, right up the coast, really, first, the city you come to at the top is the city of Antioch. You round the corner of the Mediterranean, and then that's where Tarsus was. Tarsus was a very unique city, very uh, uh, very unique, especially when I started studying this and looking into it. Tarsus was the city where Mark Antony and Cleopatra first met. How romantic is that? Not very, obviously. <laughs> but it was a unique city. It was a free city. It was, a, it was a, a trading city. It was a commuting city. People would go through it on the way from, uh, if they wanted to avoid the pirates in the Mediterranean Sea, they would go by land and they would tend to go this direction. So it was a very interesting city. Paul stuttered, studied under the feet of a man called Gamil. It says in the scriptures that he studied under his feet. It just means that he sat and he learned from him. He went to a college that he was at and he was teaching from. Gamil was a mar- remarkable man in many ways. He appears in the scriptures in, in Acts chapter 5. You don't have to turn to this. Acts chapter 5 verse 34 what had happened is that Peter and some of the apostles were out and they were doing miracles and they were healing people and people were being touched and they were preaching about Jesus. And the Sadducees hated this. And they did was they gathered them up and they brought them in and they arrested them. And they had a big council meeting, as it were, a religious council meeting. And it says, but a Pharisee named Gamil, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. That's Peter and the apostles. The apostle. Verse 38 says, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you. This was his advice to the Sanhedrin. Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will, be, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Amen. For a Jew, that's actually a lot of wisdom in that. For someone who's not a believer... You know, the scriptures don't say that he was a believer. So we, we have to assume that he was not a believer. He was a Jew and he seen what had happened. He heard what Jesus had taught, obviously because it was all the buzz of the city. And yet he has this bit of wisdom. Listen, you know, sometimes there's a bit of wisdom in that for us as well. We can jump onto things as Christians and especially as Pentecostals and go, this is great, it's of God, or this is terrible, it's not of God. We can jump to conclusions and sometimes it's good to sit back and let that see what happens. If it is from God, it'll be in line with the scriptures. It'll be in line with the spirit of God. But if it's not of God, it will fail. So Gamil's advice to the Sanhedrin was to sit back. If it's not of God, if it's man-made, if he has manufactured all this, if these apostles have manufactured these stories, it'll fail. It'll fall flat in its face. But if it's from God, oy vey, it's a good idea to sit back. Such wisdom. But Gamil was the grandson of Hillel the Elder. It says uh, Hillel the Elder was, his, was a, one of the, in Judaism, they look back even to this day, look back to Hillel as one of the greatest minds of the time. He lived before Christ, 
um, only a few years before Christ, uh, but he has venerated his teachings. Are, they're, 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 they're still read to this day. He came up with the expression of the ethic of reciprocity or the golden rule. So he came up with it. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. And that is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Now go and learn. Again, there was a legacy of learning, a legacy of wisdom there. There's a legacy. I mean, that's not far, really, what he says there. It's not a big leap from that to what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said of the greatest commandments? In Matthew 27, he talks about God, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others that you would like them to do unto you. It's, it's not a huge leap. So Saul, who, who, ta- who learnt at the feet of Gamil, had this legacy of learning, a legacy of wisdom in the scriptures, and obviously just regular Judaic wisdom uh, to, to draw upon. He had such a, a heritage. Uh, he went to this prestigious Jewish theological university in Jerusalem. We would call it that now. But being from Tarsus, he obviously his father, they raised the money and they said, let's send him here. His father actually learned in uh, Acts 23, it says when, when they perceived that one part of the group was Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out to the council. This is Paul speaking, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. So he came from a household that was steeped in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. It was steeped in the traditions, as he goes on to say at one point, of our fathers. He was learnt at the feet of Gamil, the grandson of Hillel. What heritage! You can see how easily he was, he was being geared up and being lined up for something. He was on course to be a mover and a shaker in the Jewish religion. Uh, his religious tra- training would have started when he was very young. That intense training that it's, we think, I'm saying training, but it's a lifestyle. You know, whenever they, the Jews, whenever they stop for Shabbat on the Sabbath, when they stop, all the things that they go through, it's very visceral. 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 It's very intense. It's got a lot of meanings and depth to it. And you can see how, you know, even we and that we talk about bring up a child in the way that they should go when they will not depart from it. The idea being that this child was brought up in the things of God, surrounded by the people of God, going through the things of God, and they might not follow through, but at least what they have learnt won't depart from them. It'll be dug in there. It'll be planted deep Amen. in their souls. So Paul was brought up in the word. He was steeped in it, really. I mean, we might not have had the scriptures at an early age, but he had parts of it. You know, in those days, people would have learned passages and, and books of the, of the Bible. Obviously, they only had the, the pleasure of only having to learn half of it. We have got the New Testaments. We've got too much to learn. That's why we don't have to learn it, really. <laughs> but you can see his heritage. Philippians 3, verse 4 says, Though I, might, uh, I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. He's saying to them, I know my stuff. Remember, there was no New Testament whenever, he was, whenever he's writing Philippians. He's writing the New Testament. So he's, he's preaching from the Old Testament. Every time he, he goes to a synagogue and starts to tell about Jesus, 
He's reading from, he's reading from the Old Testament. So he's highlighting to them, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I was brought up with this stuff. His religious pedigree was impeccable. It was easy to see that he would be going places in the faith. He'd be continuing on the religious legacy of Gamil and Hillel. He was in big company. He spoke Hebrew and Greek and probably some Latin. We learn that from, uh, from the scriptures. It talks about it as well. As I said at the beginning, he was born in the city of Tarsus. We all know Saul of Tarsus. In Acts 22, it talks about um, he was challenged um, about his, uh, um, about, he was arrested and he says, then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Because there's big penalties for torturing or, or mistreating a Roman citizen. And he said, yes. The commander answered and said, with a large sum, I obtained citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. So this Roman officer had paid, he'd saved up and he had bought the right to call himself a citizen. But Paul was saying, yeah, but I have an even greater right. I might be a citizen as well, but I was born a citizen. So, th- so Paul had a, a position. It's, it's remarkable now when we look at him and we think about him, his heritage and where he came from. And we think about this man who's ripe. You know, you, you talk about key people, uh, key people that, that God could use and God obviously did use him. But you can see how his background and everything that he had experienced that could, could be going off in a, in a, uh, towards Judaism, and that's obviously where he was heading. But it's wonderful to see how God can interrupt and God can divert someone. How God can step into what we think are our plans and where we think we're going and what we think are, is our destiny for our lives and we think is right and proper. And then God steps into the mix and says, no, that's not right. That's not what I want you to do. Now, I can take what you have learnt and what you have experienced and what you have gone through and who you are. I can take that and use it for my kingdom. But it's going to be my plans and my way. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it fabulous? God can step in to what he thought was going to happen, how he thought his life was going to be led. Now, he's got to go through some stuff, which we're going to get to. But he had a plan. He had a vision. What's my five-year goal? What's my 10-year goal? I've never had one. Because <laughs> I never know. <laughs> Whenever you love God, you just don't know where he's going to take you. You don't know what he's going to do with you. What door he's going to open next. What phone call you're going to get. What email, what text, what knock on the door. You just don't know. God is a God of, of opportunity. There, there is no closed doors with God. There's no dead ends. Praise the Lord. So Paul had a, a plan. He thought he knew where he was going. He thought he knew what his, uh, uh, his future was going to be. He had such a zeal and a passion for Judaism. He had a passion for it, the faith of our fathers. You can hear that in, in, in whenever you read some of the things he says, the tradition of our fathers. He loved that tradition. I, I'll be honest, I, I love the idea of, of, you know, especially when I was younger, probably more so when I was younger, I loved the idea of walking in heritage, walking in tradition, walking in what my family have done. I, I didn't want to be a farmer dad now. But, you know, that idea of, of stepping out for God or that idea of doing, you know, of being, and, oh, you know, I remember looking up our family heritage and family thing. Our, our, our family, 
you can trace the Fowler family, certainly my dad's side, I don't know my mum's side. Um, I'm only half her side, I'm mostly dad's though. Um, <laughs> but I remember looking back at our family, her family heritage and going like, you know, um, we had fam people named after, well, my, my granddad was Tommy, Thomas Dick, and Thomas and John and all that. So I found Thomas and John Dick we're from the Mourn Mountains, Leganani, as Dad loves to remind everyone. The Dramara area, Leitrim area, there was back to the 1700s, and I remember getting a real kick out of that. That's brilliant. My family kept... So I understand Paul loving the idea of walking in heritage, walking in the footsteps of the fathers of, of great men like Gamil and Hillel, and shaping the nation, the faith of the nation. I can understand that. And he had a passion, a passion for, for, for God. He had a passion for the Old Testament. He had a passion for these things. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed not just that the priesthood should be a holy people, not just that the priesthood should be holy when they went into the temple and they went through their, their rituals and all the rest. They believed that that holiness should be transmitted to the people and the people should also be holy. And the people should also be walking in the law and they should be living up to the same standard as the priests walked. And he believed that. And that's why he has such a zeal. Now his zeal went bonkers. His zeal took off and he became filled with that zeal, with that rage almost, to, to make sure that, that that was fulfilled, that people followed the law, that people lived up to it. Pharisees were chasing people around. You know, uh, I mean, we know that story of the Pharisee, thank, thank you God that I am not like other men. You know, what, there's no grace in that. It's, it's pure law, it's pure harsh and in your face. Paul was filled with his religious zeal. Galatians 1.13 says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond my, many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceeding zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He wanted to keep it going. We need to stay pure. We need to stay true to the cause. All admirable qualities. But he went beyond that. He was fully engaged in his faith, fully engaged in keeping those who followed the faith in line, fully engaged in promoting it in other cities and other areas, um, seeking out the followers of Christ. Um, Acts 7, 54 says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. This is the first time he really appears in scripture. In Acts 7, 54, we know this is the stoning of uh, Stephen. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. 56 says, and, and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen had preached up a storm. He got them right between the eyes. He hit them in the solar plexus. He knew, they knew what he was saying was true and they couldn't stand against it. And they stoned him. 57 says, and they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. That must have been a horrifying sight. Really must have been. Can you imagine just the sheer animal instinct of it? I don't want to hear and charge at him. Quick, get him before he says another word. And 58 says, verse 58 says, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. First time he appears in Scripture was at the stoning of Saul, or stoning of uh, Stephen. First time. He may have been a bystander just being there. But as we go on into the next verses, he's not. I believe he was stirring it up, stirring it up, keeping it going, making a few wee comments here, a wee few comments there, agitating the crowd, keeping them going. It can't be understated at this time in Jerusalem how much the teachings of Jesus and the effect of his ministry galled and annoyed the religious establishment. It can't be understated how aggravated they were. We have to remember that they've got so aggravated they've just stoned, they've just crucified Jesus. They've taken him out. They've gone and they manufactured lies against him. They were so enraged against Jesus. His popularity, the fact that people were calling him the Messiah, and he had the, the, the audacity to say that he was God. And here now his followers are doing the same thing. They're saying, yes, Jesus, whom you crucified, he was the Lord and he is the Lord. So Saul, who's a religious man, who's devoted, he's enraged as well. He's inflamed. He's furious. And it says in Acts 8, the very next verses, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that's Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Paul's cuddly in comparison. Saul was enraged. He was seeking them out, breathing cruelties, gathering up women and children and taking them to prison. Shackled them, tortured them, forcing them to blaspheme against Jesus. Those who refused, they would have a kangaroo religious court where he would then present a case and cast lots or cast votes to see whether they were going to be forgiven or whether the evidence was sufficient to have them executed. Where did I get that from? That's from Acts 26, verse 9 and on. It says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That was Saul. That was where he was at. He cast my vote. What that means is they had, we would have had small pebbles, black pebbles and white pebbles, and they would have a discussion, and they would put, present their evidence, and they would say, okay, I put in your pebble. What do you think they were guilty? Do you think they were innocent? He didn't have a white pebble. I cast my vote. They're guilty. They're Christians. 
They're followers of this way. It was always black. Compel them. The word there means to compel, to drive to, to constrain by force, by threats, by entreaties and by other means. He forced them. He didn't just ask them nicely. (laughs) He wasn't a member of the Church of England to have a cup of tea and a biscuit and discuss whether you're actually a Christian or not. Vicious. He was enraged. Can you imagine the kangaroo court they would bring around like-minded people? Jesus experienced it. These other people, other believers, fellow believers, we should say, experienced it. They were gathered together and he would cast lots, present evidence, compel them to blaspheme. That means to speak reproachfully, to rail at, revile, to make false or deflammatory statements about, to blaspheme, to speak evil of. They forced them. We're going to have a vote in a minute. And if we decide that you're guilty of being a Christian, we're going to kill you. But if you say something terrible about Jesus, if you blaspheme his name, if you tell us everything he's did was a lie and you really don't believe him and he never rose from the dead, if you tell us something like that there, if you blaspheme and you make it good and convincing, maybe we'll let you off. That's me just saying it. Could you imagine that under threat? You know, think of what they do in those foreign countries where they're torturing people and the religious, religious police gather people together and bring them in and saying, you're not following the teachings of Allah strict enough. Do you think they come in and they say it gently? They come in and they say, how do you feel about the Quran? Saul of Tarsus wasn't much better. He forced them. They were threatening them. They were torturing them. Convert now. Tell us it was all a lie. Tell tell us you don't believe in this Jesus of Nazareth. It says that he was breathing out in verse 9 there. We read the first verse we read. It says, Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murders, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests. Threats and murder. You can imagine them. Oh, I want to kill these guys. They're polluting the faith. They're corrupting it. They're corrupting the worship of Yahweh. Oh, these people, I want to murder them all. I want to round them all up. This world will be a better place without them. Oh, they're terrible. They're a blight on our society and our religion and our faith. The purity of our faith, the integrity of it. Oh, we got to get these people. Oh, these are terrible people. They're evil people. They're downright bad people. Breathing out threats and cruelties. He was enraged against them. Can God save a man like that? Can God change a life like that? His testimony bears it out, doesn't it? His testimony bears out that no one is beyond the reach of God. That no one is, no one is unredeemable. Some people look at their lives and they think to themselves, you know, can God save me? We might look at our loved ones or people we know and we say, can God save him or her? What can God do with that life? The glorious gospel is that God can come along and meet us where we are. No matter how deep the hole we've dug is, 
no matter how dark the night we're living in is, no matter how much hate and rage and bitterness is in our hearts, God can come and save. God can break in to where we are. He can soften a stiff neck. He can give us a heart of flesh again and save us. Isn't that wonderful? When we look at our loved ones, sometimes we can despair, especially if they've walked away from Christ. We can despair thinking, oh, look at them, they're going out there again. Oh, look at them, they're doing that again. They know they shouldn't be doing that. They weren't brought up that way. We can despair at our loved ones and thinking we've they've heard the gospel a dozen times, a million times, and we can throw up the head and go, oh, what's the point? What's the point? The truth is that God is a faithful God. Amen. God is a good God. Hallelujah. You know what? I trusted him with my heart. I trusted him with my life. You know what? I can trust him with the lives of our loved ones. We can trust him with the lives of that person that he has led in our heart, that person we want to see saved, that person we want to see come into the kingdom. Today, we might be at war with them. We might be angst against each other all the time. But one day... One day there could be a day, there could be a glorious day where we could be standing hand in hand, praising the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords. We just do not know. We have to keep holding on in faith, believing if God can save Saul, he can save anyone. Really? If he can change a life like this, what is beyond his ability? Nothing. Nothing. No one has gone so far that God cannot save them. He could step in and change the direction of their lives yeah. dramatically. Hallelujah. One of the things that's remarkable is that God, <laughs> God did not change Saul's name. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find that God changed Saul's name. Saul obviously was born in a, a, a more of a Gentile city, but his Saul was his Hebrew name or his Jewish name, and Paul was his Greek name. Um, I can remember working for a business, actually, I was going to say Martin, Martin and Oak, Oak Tree Marketing, all them decades ago. And we, we contacted a business, uh, I contacted a business to chase up accounts or something. And um, it was John or something. I believe that, the story's a bit fuzzy, but I think it was John. Called, is John there? There's no one called John here. I like John the boss. Oh, you mean Sean? Some, some people in certain communities would have, a, a, you know, an Irish name and, a, and an English name, as it were. So it's not uncommon to see that, you know. So that's what's happened with Saul. He never changes his name. God never changes his name. But as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, he starts using his Gentile name, which is obviously it's a, just makes him more appealing to them or more open to them. And if we go on there, um, Acts 9, read on the next verses. I want to read a few verses here. Acts 9, verse 10. Obviously, he's, he's in Damascus. He's blind. He's without sight there for three days. And verse 10, it says, Now there was a certain di- disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. 
Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. Sorry, that's not my message, but isn't that wonderful? He comes in and he says, Brother Saul. Automatically, he's in the family of God. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to go through any probationary period to be a member of God's family. You don't have to wait till one day down the line that after a year or two years or three years, then I'll be a member of the family of God. At that moment, of, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you're automatically a member of the family of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that fabulous? Brother and sister. Isn't that wonderful? Sorry. <laughs> so sometimes you read the word and there's so much in it really um, verse seven, 17 we'll start again and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him he said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road uh, <laughs> appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some, ta- some days with the disciples at Damascus. Uh, praise the Lord. As I was preparing this message, I, I found a quote that I thought was quite appropriate at this moment. It's from C.H. Spurgeon. Talking about this verse, these verses here, he says, Acts 9, 11, poor Saul had been led to cry for mercy. And the moment he began to pray, God began to hear. Do you not notice in reading the chapter what attention God paid to Saul? He knew the street where he lived. Go to the street that is called Straight. He knew the house where he resided. Inquire at the house of Judas. He knew his name, it was Saul. He knew the place where he came from, inquire for Saul of Tarsus. He knew that he prayed. He said, behold, he prayeth. God knows exactly where we are and what we're going through. Exactly, exactly. It might not seem like it, but he knows exactly where we are. And especially if we're calling out to him, he knows exactly where we are. He hears our prayers. Ananias is is a remarkable character. Can you imagine him? He's got one one job to do. One job to do. I want you to go to this place. He's a devout man, a man of faith. And he goes to to this this house, to this street and to this house. If it's a courage on behalf of the man to to go there, um, to go and face Saul, the wolf who has been killing the sheep of God's pasture, go there and go, go speak to him. But God, don't you know? And he went. There's a lesson in it for us. So Ananias, he had one thing to do and they did it. And look at the consequences. I want, we want a big thing to do. We want another big thing and another big thing and another big thing. God says to us, do the small things, do the simple things. Go to a street called Straight. Meet a man in a house who's blind. Go do the simple things. 
I was reminded of a story of a couple who went to Africa to be missionaries. They spent many years there working in a village, taking the gospel to this village, trying to just tell them about Jesus and about the good news. Year after year passed and they, got, they seemed to get nowhere. After a while, the, the wife became pregnant and had a child, had a wee girl. And uh, the girl grew up and they kept preaching and kept preaching. And they kept doing their be- best to, to share the gospel with this tribe, but they were getting nowhere, absolutely nowhere. The tribe didn't want anything to do with them. They just merely just get nodded and that was it. They never did anything. After many years, the wife passed away. The husband had got angry, got frustrated. He got bitter. He was hurt. His wife had died. I've spent all this time here serving God, and what have I done? What have I got? What is the good of this? What is the good of my life? What, I've wasted it. In a moment of rage and frustration, he went, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. And he left took his daughter to the nearest missionary station and he said, you're part of a life that I, want, I don't want to remember. He left her there and he left and he came back to Europe. He spent the rest of his life in the pleasures of this world and drink and whatever else. Many years later, or a few years later, I should say, he was dying. And as he's lying on his deathbed, a young girl comes into the room, which is his daughter. She'd found him, she tracked him down through the missionary organization he was associated with. She was now a young woman. And she came in and she talked to her dad. And she said to her dad, you know, you thought you wasted all those years. You thought you'd been preaching the gospel for no good reason at all. No one had heard anything. Remember the young boy who used to play with us? play with me in the, out, in the, out in the fields. Remember that young boy? Well, he got saved. That young boy was your only convert. He played with me and he got saved. And then he went home and he told his whole tribe and they became Christians. They accepted Christ as their savior. He thought, oh, I've done nothing. I've wasted my time. I've done what I thought God wanted me to do and there was no good to it. Because he didn't know that the end. He didn't know the end. He wasn't God. He didn't know the end from the beginning. He didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes. What God was using His words and His actions. He was using them, even though he didn't know God was using them. And this young boy had then led this whole village to Christ. Ananias had done the same thing here. Yes, Paul had come to Christ at this point. He had accepted, you know, you are the Lord, and that's just, you know, he's he's had an experience, but he still had to go pray with him. Spent three days with him. Who knows what he said those three days. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, listening to him, talk to him. Paul was a different man. Saul was no longer, he was no longer that breathing out cruelties against the church. Now he was sitting in humility, humility at this unknown believer who he didn't even know, who was just a regular person who's sharing their faith with him. This is why we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Mashiach. This is it. Look, look. Do you remember the scriptures? And Paul would remember the scriptures. Paul was inspired by it. He was affected by it. Paul left from there and he went off into the desert of Arabia. 
He wanted to go and to seek these things out for himself. He talks about it in Galatians, that he went off to, to uh, he went off at sea. <laughs> to spend time and to consider it. One author has talked about Paul arriving or heading to Jerusalem or to Damascus as a prince on horses with an entourage. Now he's heading off alone into the wilderness. God's got a way of doing that sometimes, sending people off into a wilderness to learn lessons. <laughs> it's his best training ground sometimes. Could it have been when he was off in the, in the wilderness that he started to think about these things, think about God? He didn't have a New Testament, so he's clearly thinking about the Old Testament and the Old Testament types and shadows and what the meanings were of things. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but maybe. Well, we, we assume that it was Paul, but we don't know for certain. I think there's good evidence that it was. Could you imagine him writing Hebrews 1? God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Amen. He's putting the, putting the pieces together, the Holy Spirit stirring the, the, the Old Testament up in him, the Tanakh, the first covenant, he's stirring it up and he's reminding him of things and he's bringing it to his remembrance. And he's no longer Saul who's breathing out cruelties. He's no longer vehement to keep things the way they were in the status quo. Now he has been, he's had his direction changed. He's had an encounter with God that has changed his life forever. He's now on a path that is going to make him far more influential than he could ever have imagined, far more uh, uh, fruitful in his life than he could ever have imagined. Here we are 2,000 years later still talking about the man and what he has written, inspired by God. Paul, who was seeking to destroy the church and Jesus confronted him on the road and he says, why do you persecute me? Persecuting the body of Christ. Paul, who, who spent so much time describing how we are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about us being the body of Christ and about being linked together. And what does he do after talking about the body of Christ who he persecuted? His very next chapter, chapter 13, the love chapter. Talking about the body of Christ and then talking about love. What a change in the man. Talk about interrupting someone's plans to take them somewhere they didn't expect. Doing a work in the heart that molds and makes us into who he wants us to be. It's absolutely fabulous to see God working in someone's life. To feel him working in our lives and what he does to us. Sometimes we only realize when we look back at the year before or two years or five years and say, my God has changed me. God has led me to a place I never imagined. He's done something for me, to me and through me that I could never have hoped and dreamed. That's a wonderful thing about God. It's fabulous to know that we have a God who's capable of such things. The last verse I want to read is actually 1 Timothy. I don't want us to turn to it. I mentioned to Martin at the beginning of the service my, my subject title and that I was going to speak on Paul. And he said, oh, Timothy. And I, 
1 Timothy 1, 12, 1, chapter 1, verse 12, and just on it says, now this is his testimony. This is at the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy when he knows the end is near. If you could hear him sitting in that cell, writing these words, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. My, he's Paul the apostle now. He's Paul the apostle. What a change. When God encounters us, when he meets us, he changes us. He changes the trajectory of our lives. He changes what we were and makes us into what he wants us to be. Isn't that a wonderful truth? So I want to encourage you tonight. If you have loved ones or you know people who you've been praying about, don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep believing that the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, will continue to chase after them, that he will continue to stir up in them the words that they have heard in the past, whether it be in Sunday school or whether it be words of witness that you have given to them. God has this wonderful way of plumbing the depths of our spirits and bringing his words to life again, reminding us of it. And he can do that to our loved ones who are far from him, those who have rejected Christ, those who have turned their backs, If they've still got a pulse, they can still come to Christ. He still holds the door open. He still says, as it says in Revelation, that the bride, Christ and the bridegroom say, come. Lord God in heaven, we praise you and we glorify you. We thank you, Lord, for the example of the life of Saul and the example of the life of Paul. We thank you, Lord God, that no one is beyond your reach. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is faithful to the word, is faithful to remind us of Jesus and his ministry and his work. We thank you for this word tonight. Help us, Lord. Encourage us. Keep us on the path. For your name's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.